0: This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make wind turbine lightning protection easy. If you're a wind farm operator, stop settling for damaged turbine blades and constant downtime. Get your uptime back with our strike tape lightning protection system. Learn more in today's show notes or visit weatherguardwind.com slash strike tape.
1: Welcome back, I'm Alan Hall.
0: I'm Dan Blewett, and this is the Uptime Podcast, where we talk about wind energy, engineering, lightning protection, and ways to keep your wind turbines running. All right, welcome back. This is Uptime Episode 21. And on today's show, we've got a bunch of great topics for you. First off, we're going to talk a little bit about financing for offshore wind. So there's a, a new type of loan that's uh, become common on with onshore wind farms, but it looks like it might become viable soon for offshore. So that's exciting. We'll talk a little bit about hydrogen. Um, Germany's got some things in the works. Uh, GE is also using supercomputers to figure out airflow. Some of these complex... Um, just types of uh, circulation out there in the ocean pretty interesting so they can kind of predict what some of these offshore sites um what they might yield and then we're also going to talk a little bit about crawling robots flying drones some new technology in uh wind blade uh, damage detection and lastly there's a pretty interesting paper on leading edge erosion that we're going to cover a lot of really interesting takeaways from that
1: a lot of exciting things in in wind news this week uh I want to really want to talk about that GE supercomputer because I think that's a cool technology. But let's start off with the offshore wind and the financing.
0: You want to describe that a little bit deeper? Yeah. So non-recourse loans could really lower wind energy's fixed costs. And it's something like this is basically an I guess, unsecured isn't exactly the right word, but unleveraged loan. Is that how you interpret this? right Uh, it
1: would be like uh getting a mortgage on your house but they can't come take the house if you don't make the payments
0: yeah so it sounds like it's basically secured by the by the future profits so um pretty interesting that i guess lenders are starting to feel like the offshore floating technology is you know to the point where it's i guess maturing where they feel comfortable that hey this is not going to just topple over and our investment will be gone because if we can't take the physical assets then we have nothing like they need this to keep running to get paid but that sounds interesting that if if the market's getting there that these non-recourse loans will potentially pave the way for a lot of offshore floating wind farms
1: it will if they're getting confidence in the ability of those offshore sites to produce energy even late in the lifetime which is what it's all about then the risk goes way way down so it'd be like investing in a slot machine Right. The slot machine is going to put out, put out, put out, put out, no matter what you do. As long as the slot machine doesn't break, it'll always be producing revenue for you. Yeah. It, it sort of works like that. Like you don't actually own the slot machine. You own a percentage of the outcome of the slot machine, but you help finance the slot machine. Uh, not a bad investment as long as the slot machine doesn't break. And in this case, mm-hmm. uh, as we're talking about later today, the offshore wind turbine performance is not necessarily guaranteed. So this is going to be in conflict, right? Having a a non-recourse financial situation is going to be based upon the wind turbines continue to produce at some reasonable level at years 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 plus. How do you get there? And are are the designs we have coming out of the factories today going to be able to do that? Um, So there's... Bunch of dispute about that right now. It's some really interesting papers coming out in the last month or two discussing those uh, outcomes. So,
0: yeah, and we'll of course, uh, you know, deeper. this, yeah, and this is an article from Green Tech Media, um, good reporting from Jason Dane. But I mean, yeah, I mean, they say like this isn't, this isn't brand new technology, the floating wind turbines. Like they're stealing from oil and gas. Like they're not reinventing the wheel. Right. They're saying, hey, we've been doing this for a long time offshore. How right. can we apply this to wind? So it's, it's quickly maturing. Which again makes sense. They've been doing stuff like this way out there in the in the open ocean for a long time. So it sounds like so, they're getting yeah. Close. What's,
1: your, what's your worst case on an offshore wind turbine? It sinks, right? Falls over. Yeah. <laughs> that's your that's your worst case in that situation. Don't Dolph, dolphin
0: happened. attack. They're like get Dolphins this attack. get this out of <laughs> get this out of our ocean. This doesn't belong here. Yeah. Flipper goes crazy. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but no, I mean, uh, it, and it's interesting to. To forecast for like what the the worst possible, you know, waves would be, like with a crazy storm. Cause yeah, I mean, you've seen some of the like the deep sea fishing. I mean, those are intense. To think that a, a winter line could float in conditions like that seems crazy. But then again, you see these oil and gas rigs out there and they're still, they're out they're, there, they don't go under. So, just right. a, a testament to the engineering. It's it's pretty it's pretty incredible.
1: It is, and even the the tsunami situation, which I think is in my head, has always been the worst case when you got a wave. It sucks all the water out and it pushes all the water mm-hmm. back at you. Uh, you know, designing against things like that is crazy. I'm not sure the wind turbines, the floating wind turbines, going to be able to handle that kind of situation. So that's one of the things about off coast of Japan because that's where a lot of tsunami activity happens. But uh, you know, in every in everybody's mind, to get to a financial situation that's stable, essentially, that turbine installation cannot go away in any possible circumstances. Just the downside risk would be huge there. So, it seems like we're getting to the point, though, in evolving engineering wise to a stable situation, which is good. Which is where we should be at this point.
0: Yeah. So some news out of Germany, this article is via renews.biz. Germany's backing the Orsted green hydrogen team. So they're trying to obviously, along with everyone, to slowly decarbonize over time. I guess maybe slowly is not the word, but just trying to get there, I guess, as soon as we can, which is still 5, 10, 15 years away, right? But um, they're really going hard after hydrogen. And, you know, this project would, I mean, it looks, sounds like it's pretty involved as far as, you know, just like the funding that they require. There's just a lot of investment. There's, it just seems like there's a lot going on, but they're going to produce green hydrogen, transport it, have their own gas network, you know, and it'll be used in industrial processes and a lot of different things. So what does, what does this mean here?
1: Well, I want to know what green hydrogen even means if there's green hydrogen are there other colors of hydrogen i don't understand that terminology because it just seems like hydrogen only one possible solution for hydrogen uh is going to be discussed and i'm not i don't know if that's the right answer either obviously things evolve over time and if we can i know we can remove hydrogen from essentially fossil fuels today to it's a much more efficient method to do it uh if that gets us to the situation where we can get to electrolysis or essentially you know taking water and breaking it apart into hydrogen and oxygen that process will take us longer to get to so what do you want to do? You want to continue to, b- to burn diesel fuel until you get to green hydrogen? Or do you want to get to hydrogen? Because I think the answer is to get to hydrogen first and then worry about the green secondarily. But that's not sometimes where the, the European consortiums go. They go for the, the, the big thing. And then um, it, it, it may become just like Germany has gone through recently where they have devolved back into a lot of coal um, and shut down some nuclear sites. I'm not sure that made any sense either. So, uh, if they're going to get to a, a hydrogen, great. If they want to do a hydrogen sooner, awesome. But there's there there needs to be some interim steps and, and the willingness to take those interim steps to get to a bigger hydrogen future. Don't you think, Dan? I mean, it just yeah, it just well, it makes so logical it's, sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, it says here that in in phase one, which would raise or would run about five years. That a newly formed joint measure is going to build a 30 megawatt electrolyzer to produce green hydrogen. So, I guess that's what they mean. They're doing electrolysis. And then right. the second stage is scaling that up to 700 megawatts. So, which is, they say, the yeah. electricity generated by a typical offshore wind farm. So, right. Yeah. So, it looks like they're just kind of going all in on the electrolysis right. pro- process. Yeah.
1: Right. Which is just a very inefficient process, which everybody knows, right? We know how to do that. We've done that for. Hundreds of years at this point, be able to you know figure out how to separate hydrogen from water, uh, but if it's not the most efficient way to do it, man, and the uh, yeah, it's like like I said here, the infrastructure to do that is going to be complicated, and uh, it may not be the short term solution.
0: Gotcha. Well, and then our last segment here on on some news is that GE wants to give offshore wind a boost through supercomputing. So. Um, interesting PDF by, uh, Justine Kalma and, uh, Alan, what are your takeaways from this? Cause it sounds like their goal is to really understand some of these interesting wind patterns offshore. Like you said, like you don't exactly know, it's just not just, Hey, wind out here is blowing 30 miles per hour in this direction. It's just not that simple. So right. w- what did you interpret, um, this supercomputer solution? Well, I- <laughs>
1: It uh, as an engineer, it's like here are the keys to the candy store. Have fun, mm-hmm. and anytime you get access to a supercomputer, you're like, wow, okay, let's see how fast it can go. Let's see how big of a problem I can throw at it, and let's 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 see if it'll really do what I really, what. And, in, and a lot of the the uh, larger wind turbine companies are are really wanting to do is to look at a wind turbine site as a system not as individual wind turbines but to look at them next to one another relative to one another and how the airflow of one wind turbine affects the next one down the line and how you can uh, minimize turbulence there and increase overall uh, output of the entire farm the only way to do that well there's a couple ways to do it empirically you can just go out and just try a couple things on a wind turbine farm say well we're just going to guess at it and take some empirical data and try to put some plots on a chart on your Excel spreadsheet and try to figure that out. The better way to do it is to look at uh, it computationally if you can, and the supercomputer's the only way to do that because aerodynamic problems are very, very, very complicated and they eat up a lot of uh, CPU time. So um, GE having access to that, and it sounds like, was it Oak Ridge National Laboratory was going to basically open the doors for them to go do that? Um, I think Oak Ridge National Laboratory has been historically, a nuclear research laboratory. Um, so my guess is that they've been using supercomputers to determine nuclear detonations, probably. So mm-hmm. those supercomputers tend to be very, very large and powerful to do nuclear detonations. So this application would be great. Uh, I, I'm, I'm really wondering, you know, we've talked about this a couple of times recently where uh, some of this technology and some of this information just kind of gets sucked into a vacuum and you never hear of it again. Yeah. And I hope this doesn't happen, right? Because it's, we're trying to make the whole industry much more efficient and powerful. And if we don't put some papers out discussing how this can be done or what the benefits are, then we're just, we're losing. And you know, the industry is going to lose and that's not good.
0: Yeah. So it's not like they're going to study, especially these coastal low level jets, which are air currents that really don't follow typical wind patterns. And uh, they said so they can just like rise rapidly up and then just suddenly drop off. And so they're really hoping to understand how that's gonna affect an offshore wind farm. So they can obviously plan, you know, to get as much efficiency well, did, as they can. Right, and uh, we live on the East
1: Coast. I, I, I'm not sure exactly what they're talking about in terms of these jets. And I mean, I've, I've been to the shore a number of times. Yeah, I And mean, it's just windy near the shore. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if it's a specific location. Is it kind of towards down towards North Carolina where there's stronger winds, or up up our way, which towards Massachusetts and uh, New York, or the, when the winds are maybe stronger coming off the off the, the coastline. And that's something I hadn't heard of before. But it sounds like it's a real local effect closer to the ground, not actually up at up where most wind turbines operate. But um, if it creates additional energy, perfect, use it.
0: All right, so let's jump to a little bit of uh, engineering talk. So first here, um, an article from machinedesign.com talking about crawling robots, flying drones. And obviously, we you know, we talked with uh, the CEO of SkySpecs, Danny Ellis, in the past about uh, drone technology and autonomous wind farms. And this is something that he mentioned, you know, the crawling robots and being essentially able to automate this whole process of getting to uh potentially even repairs with one of these things so pretty interesting technology to you know attach something like this have it just creep around get really good resolution photos you know it's it's got lidar capacity um but i mean do you think this is going to be viable anytime soon or is this kind of one of those pie in the sky things
1: Well, it's viable and the what they're trying to do is, is is put systems on these robots that can detect st- structural issues that are sort of deeper into, this, into the blade structure. That's hard to do. Yeah. Uh, so you're going to need something that's stationary. It's physically mounted to the, to the blade typically to do that. But they're completely in competition with drones. And if drones can figure out a way to get the same amount of information, it'll be a drone world quickly. Uh, the, just because I think it has to do with speed. Right, The Sky Specs can do, what, 15, 20 turbines in a day? Yeah. That's some crazy number. And it's it, it's so fast and so automated and it's taking so much data that the efficiency there can't be ignored. Uh, the crawling robots are seem to be more in tunes of we need a, to replace coatings maybe or look at very specific things that uh, involve more investigation. That, that technology is sort of secondary so that I think your first line of defense in most of these – situations are airborne drones that's the first one just get a look at it see what's going on and if I need a subsequent drone to come in or a robot to come in and and do a repair or take some x-rays or whatever else they want to do that crawling technology does make sense but it's not going to be the primary investigation method I don't think not yet not yet
0: yeah I I just wonder how I mean, you know, they've got to attach the blade. They've got to. I mean, it just seems like a much slower, more cumbersome process to have a robot attaching than flying. I mean, that just seems. But again, some of those technologies might not really see through the blade as well if they're not physically attached right. to it, perhaps. Just like an ultrasonic, you know, you've got to touch that to your skin to, you know, see your, you know, your newborn, your yeah. your unborn baby, you know, stuff like that to see what's right. inside. It's not like they can just hold that, you know, two feet away from you and see inside. So. I no. guess there's going to be give and take, but you wonder if these drones can just like land on the blade and then just do the same thing. You need a hybrid thing, or just <laughs> it gets close like a like a like a murder hornet. You know, murder hornet's going to fly in, but then he's going <laughs> to land on you and then sting you. He's not just going to sting you from a couple of feet away. You know, so taken from the animal kingdom.
1: Exactly, we're, we're taking animal technology, but it, you know, I, I was reading an article. Uh, this 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 week, which is talking about being able to st- uh, sort of sticky surfaces like a gecko's feet is kind of sticky, mm-hmm. and I, it it started cranking the gears in my head like, oh yeah, oh, that's true. So you can have these kind of sticky surfaces like flies have those and bees and mm-hmm. have those kind of feet that they can latch onto things. I thought, wow, I wonder if that gets to a point when like on a drone, you know, where it can just basically stick itself onto a, an, a, an airboard drone can stick itself onto the blade and do what you're talking about, yeah, which is it, it maybe takes an
0: x-ray. Yeah, it does seem reasonable. Yeah. That's not crazy technology. I mean, we have all sorts of crazy stuff that are, you know, Right. I mean. The,
1: the software to drive that will be
0: You know, if if anybody can do it, it's going to
1: be Sky Specs could do it because their software uh, to fly those drones is remarkable. But, I mean, you have to take it from basically a horizontal helicopter position and flip it over on its side and stick it to the blade. That's going to involve some sort of tilting going on, like a tilt rotor situation. But, yeah it's possible it's totally possible and if if it, if the situation warrants it the one that really i think warrants it is the offshore turbines and the blades offshore just because you're kind of hanging out on a boat and things are turbulent and you, you only want to do this one time if you're out there scanning it with a drone and you do find something that does need a, that secondary look you would like to be able to take that look while you're out there instead of going back to wherever it sounds like some of these boat rides are not fun uh no do it while you're there and get the data all at one time and uh yeah some software engineer has got a lot of work ahead of him to do that and some aerodynamicist has got a lot of work to do in front of him but that's the next step, right? Because we're seeing we're seeing two separate levels of of information. Like there's the quick scan, leading edge erosion, uh, lightning damage kind of numbers, and then we're seeing the second one, which is there's been a wrinkle in a in a fiberglass ply or some sort of balsa problem inside of the blade that you that most likely is a manufacturing issue that wasn't caught
0: mm-hmm. that
1: they're seeing out in the field or a shipping issue that happened in the field where they had some buckling occur that is going to take a little more technology to look at
0: yeah gotcha so speaking of leading edge erosion you did a deep dive on this research article uh leading edge erosion of wind turbines effect of solid airborne particles and rain on operational wind farms so what do you got this is a looks like a, you yeah, said this, it was a pretty this, interesting read
1: this this paper came out it was published uh, earlier this year uh the, the, it it's produced by the um School of Engineering Institute for Materials and processes, the University of Edinburgh, Edinburgh, Scotland, UK um, and so that's Hamish law and Vasilios Kotos. Um, Sorry about that. I'm sure, but they had done a, a a lot of research into, and obviously Scotland's one of those places where uh, the, the, a lot of offshore activity and onshore activity, wind turbine turn activity, going on, and it's a really harsh environment. I don't know if you've ever been to Scotland, but I'm not. Uh, it's beautiful. <laughs> okay first off it's beautiful right it's beautiful but it's not always the best weather and uh being all there's some really wicked storms there there's also a lot of salt and things flying around in the air that are they're finding are causing a leading edge damage to blades and the numbers they gave were remarkable uh let me just read some of this because i think it brings to light what's going on it says the energy losses associated with leading edge erosion on an operational wind farm are examined in this paper with the average annual energy production dropping by 1.8 percent due to medium levels of erosion with the worst affected turbine experiencing losses of 4.9 percent okay annually holy cow, that's a lot of damage and a lot of degradation to the performance of wind turbine because of leading edge erosion. And what they're going through this this paper is discussing uh, more specifically is that they looked at wind turbine leading edges over like a 14, 15-year period. And roughly 90% of them had moderate levels of leading edge erosion damage. And half of them had severe leading edge erosion damage. Well, if that's the case and it's driving down your energy production numbers, that's got to get fixed. Now, what they're, what the paper seems to be focused on is there really isn't a great standard for wind turbines of what the environment looks like or how to test for it. And if you can't test for it, then how are you evaluating products that are being applied to it? I know Polytech is sort of the leader in leading its erosion uh, protection devices, they seem to have a lot of success with their product uh but there's uh, obviously there's competing views about how well those will perform in actual conditions and what this paper is trying to point out is uh some of the leading edge erosion stuff that came out five six seven years ago doesn't look like it's performing as it was intended to or Mm -hmm. as advertised so there's a there's a big dispute now as to what do you do right because you've Put on this material, and the and the OEMs are doing the same thing. Where the OEMs are saying we got this thing, it's erosion material. They're putting it out in the field, and it doesn't do what it does. They're supposed to do. And you know, as as the as the operator, what are you gonna do? You know, there's nothing to do besides eat the power loss, or or try to repair it, right? Uh, so engineering wise, that's we shouldn't be here today. We're this is 2020. We shouldn't be guessing at this my opinion we would never guess on it on the aircraft side that's for darn sure uh we've had national in the united states and in europe they've had national bodies looking at all kinds of erosion issues since the 1950s so there is data out there yeah uh, i don't know am just not sure we're grabbing hold of it like we probably should it's a big issue
0: well what do Power you think it's big yeah what do you think that equates uh, i'm sure that's probably a, a lot of complex numbers just to quickly run but i mean right. if it's one two three four percent what does that look like per year or, yeah what does that look like financially i mean is that a loss of ten thousand dollars
1: oh if you're losing half your energy production by you know I, I saw that number tossed around today as a bunch of discussions in the united states there's some congressional hearings over the last week or two about uh Energy direction in the United States, and one of the numbers that got tossed out was: well, wind turbines are about fifty percent as efficient uh, after the fifteen years in service versus a brand new wind turbine. Like so, you what the implication was was that uh, your power generation is is dropped by a factor of fifty percent, so that you just don't your theoretical power production over that twenty year lifespan is just now nowhere near what is predicted. Uh, the the in, in, the congressional combat then ensued <laughs> just to sum it up like there there was clashes at high levels this week about that now i, I don't know how you get around that right you, you either have to mod the wind turbine blades put something additional on them or do a bunch of additional testing you're gonna probably do both why haven't we done that yeah am i missing something here why haven't we done that
0: yeah, I guess it's a good question. I mean, you think that because it sounds like that the factories are still making them in largely the same way. Obviously, they're getting longer. And so the, the right. internal structures are getting stiffer and lighter. You know, they're using more carbon fiber, stuff like that to accommodate the bigger blades like because they're huge. But it doesn't seem like they're doing more aftermarket stuff. Not aftermarket, but, you know, like, it seems like the only solutions now are to improve them using aftermarket companies like Polytech. That's like, why mm-hmm. Why isn't someone installing something like that off the factory floor? Like, why well, is I think lightning Polytech, protection yeah. still so poor off the factory, you know, rolling out of the factory? It's <laughs> like, a, why? Th- there's a mystery. Yeah. I don't know.
1: Well, Polytech, I think it's installing some of their systems on OEM blades, uh, which is a good step.
0: Because yeah, on the I ground, think the polytechn- in, in, inside, yeah. where you're not dangling from, you know, the it's heavens. just controlled. Yeah. Right.
1: So, you know you're you you know, going to get a, a, a much more consistent installation uh, with a lower level technician, probably. You do have someone who knows how to repel and also put on these things. Uh, but one of the uh, – yeah, I think you're right. You still see blades being produced today that don't incorporate really – much in terms of leading edge protection and if it creates that sort of power loss over time uh, you know what's going to happen is the insurance market's going to start to play into it and uh, dnvgl is going to step into it and say okay everybody here's here's what you're going to go do and you're going to demonstrate this it's usually measured in mass loss right so you 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 measure the weight of your test article before you put it through a rain erosion test and you measure it after and then there's some sort of measurement on um, mass loss equals uh Aerodynamic inefficiency, which equals power loss, so uh, it would be relatively simple to put some numbers on mass loss and say you can't have this much mass loss after this much exposure time. One of the one of the issues that this paper talks about also is the the modifications that are made to the blades. Uh, slightly degrade the aerodynamics which is the other issue right so one of the reasons that the the blade manufacturers don't want to put any sort of leading edge protection on is because the 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 most popular solution which is a polytech solution today uh, has a little bit of an aerodynamic penalty associated with it because anything will uh, so they they don't want to do that more than likely uh, so they 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 have high efficiency when they're first installed and then five years later they don't so over the lifetime of the of the blade i think you're better off putting on a polytech kind of solution just because it's going to get to the longevity there
0: well then shouldn't then they be engineering that solution into the overall design i mean we're talking about you know putting this polytech uh you know sheath it's not really a sheath it's not enclosing the whole thing but you know Mm. they're sticking it to the outside of it and you know if they carved in a little bit, or then that has like a little nook, yeah. a nook to go onto it. Now it has the original right. aerodynamics instead of being over top. So
1: right, and, that, and I think that's where Polytech is working with the OEMs to, to incorporate it aerodynamically into the into the blade surface. The same thing we have done the same thing on aircraft for a long time. Um, we used to. Uh, we used to do the same thing at aircraft. We used to put the, the fixes over top the leading edges to protect the leading edges, which makes it aerodynamically not as good. And then there's yeah, icing it's like issues. It's and like a bandage.
0: Yeah, you're putting a bandage. Yeah,
1: it's like a, it looks like a bandage. It looks like a secondary thought, right? And then we figured out, like, all oh, right, let's just <laughs> let's let's do some testing. Let's get NASA involved. Let's figure out how to do this. And now everything's aerodynamically really, really, really smooth. If you look at a leading edge assembly on a on a new aircraft, it's incredibly smooth.
0: All right, well, we're gonna wrap up today's episode of Uptime. If you're new to the show, welcome. If you're a regular here, thank you for your continued support. Please subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from each show. For Alan and all of us at WeatherGuard, stay safe and we'll see you next week. Is downtime causing you financial pain and putting a stop to your power production for months on end? It's no secret, lightning strike damage is a major cause of wind turbine downtime. This damage is preventable with our easy to install strike tape lightning protection system for wind turbine blades. Our incredible engineering, build quality, materials, and edge sealants withstand up to 5 times more abuse in the toughest weather and lightning conditions. And we've got the research to prove it. If you're tired of constant downtime, we can help. Reach out to us at weatherguardwind.com and schedule a free call. We'll get your uptime back in no time.